Thanks for listening to one of our messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. in person and online. To find out more about our church or to connect to any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you seek to follow Jesus. We come here and God's going to do something here and now in and through his word. And we live in a really critical culture. So as we come here together, we shed our critical exterior and we ask the question, how can we tap into what God is telling us? How can we turn into contributors to the conversation of faith? And that takes effort on our part, and it takes intentionality, and it takes a work of God in and through our spirit. And so we're going to just take some time and pray. We're going to ask that the Holy Spirit might teach us this morning. I'm going to ask that you pray for me, that I do a good job this morning now that I finally showed up, okay? So let's pray together. God, I'm so thankful to be here at a place where we can talk about the goodness of your character, where we can see that you ultimately bring transformation to our world through changed individuals. This morning, as we open some texts, change us. Holy Spirit, I pray that you speak in and through the scriptures this morning as we look at the stories of Jesus. So be with us as we open the scriptures and teach us as we can never get to the end of the goodness of of who God is and how he's working in our world. I'd ask if you're comfortable to take a couple of minutes and a couple seconds and just Say a quick prayer that the Holy Spirit might speak to your spirit this morning. I see you pray for me. God might use my preparation to help us understand more of who he is this morning. Holy Spirit, go before us and teach us as we dive into some scripture. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. We're in Matthew 9 this morning, if you have a Bible. We have another kid coming, I do, in uh, like seven or eight weeks now. It's becoming more and more real. And I'm starting to think about just the traditions we have as a family. Traditions over holidays and traditions on Saturday mornings. We try and go to the Arboretum most Saturdays. We finally got back into it this week. It was really good. It got me thinking of the values of tradition. And and this Christmas, for example, we did something at CBC. There's been a year when some people haven't felt comfortable coming into this space. And so we sent out some emails and we gathered some names and we made boxes from our staff to people that haven't felt like they could be with their church family on, on Christmas, which is all about family. And what we did in this box was we stacked different things that were traditions from our families. And so like I, I made these bars. My mom and I actually made them together, sweetest thing. And I put them in this box and Delin put some Legos in there because she wants people to feel more pain when they step on them for some reason. And Kara put this pickle that you hide on your tree. Uh, it's a German tradition. And Andy put some mulling spices in there because his family always drinks mulled cider or wine on Christmas Eve. It's really beautiful. And we said, these are our traditions from our family to your family. Know that you are loved this year if you can't be here in person. And it was really great. We got a lot of great feedback just so people felt known. And and ultimately, that's what traditions do. 
Traditions are the glue that holds customs and cultures and social fabrics together. They remind us what we share in the first place. They remind us of the values that we hold together. And Christmas this year, it was simply the value of being known because God came near. We wanted to come near in a year that felt like it was so far away. And I'm sure you, as you've thought through your traditions for your family, have some that do the same thing. You have some at Christmas that share the value of family or the value of presence or hopefully the value of Jesus. That's always a good one to put up there. The value of the things that we share together. Traditions show us shared value and bind us together. There's a professor at Yale University, Christian theology and history professor. He's got a really fantastic quote and perspective on traditions. His name's Yurgoff's Pelican, and he said, Tradition is the living faith of the dead. It keeps things alive that we value. It's why we read scripture every single Sunday morning. Since COVID, we've started doing liturgy, and before that, we kept reading scripture because when we read scripture together, we're not just saying, hey, this is something we like to do because our middle name is Bible. When we read scripture together, we're reminding ourselves that these are the words that God gave his people right here and right now, but back then as well. It's how the past factors into the present and helps shape our future together. It doesn't let us forget who we are and where we came from. Tradition is vital. But tradition can also take life away just as quickly as it can give life. You've been there, right? Where tradition feels more like a weight and more like a burden than it does a blessing. For example, next year, if you're saying, Charlie, I didn't get a box, I want a box, and we have to give 2,000 of these things, and we lost the purpose behind these Christmas boxes, and we did them out of contentment and obligation over a value of closeness, then it would become a burden, not a blessing. If I continue to go to the Arboretum with my daughter when she's 30 every Saturday morning, that might not be appropriate anymore, and it might feel like punishment instead of I get to hang out with dad, you know? There is a point in which tradition turns from being a life-giving rhythm to a rut that takes life away. He goes on in this quote to say, tradition is the faith of the dead, but traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. The idea that tradition is good, but every once in a while, tradition becomes a trap and actually ensnares instead of propels us forward. That tradition can show us what we've always valued, but traditionalism, if used inappropriately, out of context, given too much weight, what traditionalism can do is take away the life it was trying to give in the first place. I bring this up because this is church, and we are founded on traditions, and we run on traditions, and we have to, we have to ask the question, what happens when our traditions stop giving life but start taking it away? Those are our stories this morning. Jesus meets two group of people in Matthew chapter 9, and the question he's going to ask them is the question we're asking this morning, how do we know when tradition turns from a rhythm of life to a rut that takes it away? So the two stories are found in verse 9. We're going to go to verse 17. I'll read the beginning. It says, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax booth. Follow me, he said to Matthew. Whether you're new to the church game and the ways and rhythms of Jesus, or you've heard this story a lot, this is a popular one. It's the calling of Levi, the calling of Matthew, the author of this book. And just to unpack culturally what's happening here, Matthew was a tax collector. Jesus called men from all different walks of life. There were fishermen, and there were doctors, and there were tax collectors. 
All of them, all of them had a past before they met Jesus in their present, much like we all do. If you would depth chart or rank the disciples based on who they were before from a scale of 10 good to one bad, Matthew's a negative five. You got to understand that in the first century world, we live in an individualistic society. It was extremely collective, meaning the good of the whole is the good of the individual. We reverse that. There's not good or bad there. It's just simply a filter through which we value things in our current culture. I know this because I got to pick my wife. My parents didn't get to pick my wife for me. And all God's people said, amen, everybody. All right? In Middle Eastern cultures to this day, your parents pick your wife for you. And you don't see that as a drag. You see it as a joy because you get to help your family. It's a collective culture. Your identity is the identity of the collective, not the individual, radical to us. It deepens what's happening in this text when we understand it. Tax collectors, they sat at points of entry in cities and seas. And they took money from their own people for the people that were oppressing their people, Rome. Matthew was a Jewish man with Jewish heritage, born into a Jewish collective society, and he sat at the gates of his city and he stole from his own people to give it to the people that were hurting his people. Think about how much that hurt his people. And then he got rich off doing it. I say that because you have to understand the kind of treason that Levi was dealing in every day. I say that because when Jesus says, come and follow me and be a disciple, uh, an intrinsically Jewish way of living out your kind of goodness before God, an intrinsic Jewish way of saying, I want to follow the ways of the Jewish God, he says it to the one who turned his back on his own people. You think you don't like the IRS? They hated tax collectors in the first century. They went above and beyond to hurt their people. And in a collective society, there was no greater sin. So much so that when a Jew entered the custom of tax collecting, when he entered that service, he was completely outcast from society. He couldn't testify in court anymore. He was excommunicated from the synagogue. That's where all Jewish men and women had a right to go because they were Jewish. He was no longer allowed to go to the temple to meet with their God. He was kicked out. He was despised by all his people, and he was a disgrace to his people, and it extended to his family. So not only was Matthew a disgrace, but Matthew's entire family was kicked out of the synagogue in the culture. This is the person that Jesus looks at and says, come and be my disciple. Radical when you think about it. So Jesus looks at Matthew and says, come and follow me. And Matthew, the next verse, he got up and he followed him. As Jesus was having a meal in Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with Jesus and his disciples. I think this act is really telling. So it kind of shows Matthew's inclination towards what Jesus asked. Matthew wasn't being coerced into following Jesus. Matthew wasn't begrudgingly leaving a high-paying job to go and follow Jesus. It says Matthew left and then he threw a huge party and invited all his friends and said, guys, let's celebrate Jesus called me to follow. Think about it. He is celebrating the call of Jesus. It's what I'm going to do when all this COVID nonsense is over. I'm having a month of parties at my house. You are all invited. Maskless, bring your cough. I love it, everybody. Come on, you know? Because when we celebrate things, we invite friends and family. Matthew throws a party. And you have to understand as well, when Matthew leaves, there was no going back. Some of the disciples, some of them that were fishermen, Peter, for example, he was a fisherman. He had job security. 
So, so if the Jesus thing didn't work out, Peter just goes back to fishing. He actually did it once or twice in the Gospels. He said, I tried, but I'm going to go back to doing what I can make a living at. Matthew left this post. It was filled quickly. The Romans wouldn't have trusted him because he left. The Jews already kicked him out of their society and culture, so they wouldn't have given him a job. He had nowhere else to go after this. You've got to know that. Matthew's saying, I'm leaving everything and risking everything because Jesus is going to be my everything. It's a huge moment, and he throws this big party, and he's overjoyed that Jesus asked him to come and follow and be a disciple. And so it's in the middle of this party that the Pharisees, the religious leaders, walk by, and they see Jesus, and they see Matthew, they see a bunch of other people, and they're not okay with it. And they say, when they walked by, why does your teacher, your rabbi, eat with tax collectors and sinners? (laughs) That word sinners there has a couple different connotations. It can mean those people that just don't live as pious of a lifestyle as the Pharisees. Or it can mean these are the worst of the worst kinds of people. It means the latter in this context. It literally means why is he eating with these people that you shouldn't even look back, and, and look back at and run past when you pass them on the street. These are the worst of the worst. And You have to get in the first century. Meals weren't just meals. Meals weren't just I sit and I eat, I get my job done, and I go. Meals were incredibly intimate. Oftentimes, you laid down when you ate meals, and it took hours and hours and hours who you ate with, you associated with. My wife and I were in Sweden a few years ago, and we ate at this table at this small restaurant, and we ate at a table that was a communal table. So we were sitting here, and this Swedish couple, whom I did not know, joined us right next to us. I'm from Texas, and I'm an extrovert, and so I thought, these guys are going to be my friends at the end of the night, you know? And they start ordering this food, and I had ordered the menu. And so I, I was telling them, guys, you have to try this. This is very good. And you could tell from the get-go that these people wanted nothing to do with me. And you could tell from the get-go my wife was embarrassed. <laughs> so all these things started happening. At one point, she's like, Charlie, you need to stop talking to them. They want nothing to do with you. That's kind of how we eat meals now. If you're there, I'll eat next to you. In the first century world, and you ate a meal, you were sharing life in an intimate way with somebody you wanted to be more intimate with. And so it wasn't just happenstance. You actually said, I want to know you and associate with you. And the Pharisees had a problem with this. Because in their context, if you associated with sinners of this magnitude, then you also were seen as a sinners. You were ritually unclean. So Jesus is eating with these sinners, and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, said, why are you eating with them? And here's the problem. Pharisees had no problem with the fact that God saved sinners. Pharisees had a problem with the fact that God saved sinners while they were sinners. (laughs) These guys were not even trying to be good. And, and they're like, but yeah, yeah, they're not even as good as us. They're not even trying. God, why are you, Jesus, why are you sitting with these people? And it, it's a fundamental difference in Judaism in the first century. It's a fundamental difference in their religious constructs because they lived a life around regulations. Regulations are meant to keep you clean. Relationships by nature are messy things, you know? Jesus walked in this world, entered into our mess, got messy for us to show us that it doesn't have to be that way. That's why we say at CBC, one of our values is authentic community is messy. Because if you want a clean life full of no mess, then don't ever have any entanglements, but that's not how we were designed to live. And so these Pharisees, 
their best and chief goal being to stay clean, said, you're eating with people that aren't clean. And I just have to ask, I think this is an important side note. Throughout this two-chapter arc that we've been going through over the last few weeks, time and time again, Jesus reaches out to, physically touches people that the law deems are unclean. What does it say to people when we say God loves you, but we're not willing to talk to you, touch you, or eat with you? What does that say about what God thinks about them? Jesus is radically redefining who God reaches out to and who God came for. This is another example of the magnitude and majesty of his grace, of me saying the simple phrase that I don't know your past, but it doesn't matter because God's present grace is bigger than anything you've done in the past or will do in the future. It's this fundamental belief that you can't outkick the coverage of God's grace. You can't outrun his mercy. And so Jesus, being in this moment with these Pharisees, says, you guys, in all the ways, miss all the point. And his next phrase is really good. He says in verse 13, go and learn what this saying means to the religious leaders. He says, go and learn what this saying means. I want mercy, not sacrifice. I didn't come to call the righteous, but the sinners. (laughs) You got to understand what he's doing here, because it's hilarious. When he says go and learn, in the original language, it's an idiom that basically, that basically, well, it is an insult. These are Pharisees. Their job was to teach people. He implies two things. One, he's treating them like not a teacher, but a learner. And two, he's saying, you don't know what you're talking about when you're talking about this. He's quoting Hosea 6.6. He's quoting part of the Old Testament. And to get to this level of religious elitism, you had to memorize the Old Testament. They knew the verse. They knew where it came from. They knew what they thought this was talking about. Jesus says, I know you've memorized this, but you need to go back and look at it because you have no idea what you're talking about. He insults them in front of all these people. When I graduated college, I lived for the summer with my buddy in Chicago. And we both took, we went to Moody Bible, and so we took a bunch of Jesus classes and... One day, we're sitting there talking probably about how great the Lord is and how much he loves us. And we um, heard a knock at the door. And we go to answer it, and there are these two Jehovah's Witnesses. And they said, hey, can we talk to you guys about our church? And we said, well, sure. Come on up, right? And, you know, we just graduated, and so we thought we knew all the things, because that's what happens when you get a degree over four years. You graduate thinking you know all the things, not realizing you know very little about what you think you know about, right? It's the ignorance of youth, everyone. So we invite them up and they start talking to us and they say, hey, can we tell you about our God? And we say, sure, go for it. And they say, well, we believe Jesus was a God. And I said, yeah, I'm going to stop you down right there. Uh, we're going to disagree just, just a little bit, just a little bit. Uh, we think that Jesus is not a God, but, but like the God, like not, not, not plural, but singular. And they said, well, actually, if you, if you look at the Greek text, this is something that Jehovah's Witnesses do. They'll say, if you look at the Greek text in John 1, 1, it says that, you know, the, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God. And then it says in the Greek text, actually, it's mistranslated in the English, in the NIV. It says that the word was a God, not the word was God. And we looked at each other, and they were like, guys, we know what this means. You need to be retaught. I said, hold on a second. My buddy went up, walked over to the bookshelf, grabbed a Greek New Testament, and said, we just took four semesters of this. Tell me about how this works out right here, right now, you know? And we walked him through the Greek text and said, actually, this is what this means, and, and this is what this means, and this is actually not how you translate this. And they got up and said, that's interesting. We'll have to get back to you. And they walked out and never came back, right? 
It's the idea that this is what Jesus did. He opened the scriptures and says, you don't understand what you're talking about. Go and learn. In Hosea 6, when it says, I desire mercy more than sacrifice, what that verse means is simply that I desire transformation over religious tradition. The Jews at that point were offering sacrifices to God, but missed the purpose of the sacrifice in the, in the first place. They were, they were coming to worship, and they had a perfect worship gathering, but they weren't being formed by the worship in the first place. Jesus is saying, I desire a whole person that is transformed, not just flawless worship. And everybody at CBC said, I know, <laughs> right? Because it's this idea that they missed the point of what Jesus was doing in the first place. And this is the difference between tradition and traditionalism, things that breathe life into us and ruts that take it away, is that tradition establishes those values that mean so much to who we are as a people, as a culture, as a society, as a family. But when the tradition is, is weighted too much over the point of the tradition, we miss out. So the first thing we see is that traditionalism often blinds us from seeing and celebrating the magnitude of God's grace. They couldn't see it. Because they said, this isn't how God works. He doesn't call people like that. There's a point in my life when I did way too many weddings. Way too many. And I got a little critical of weddings. I remember I was going to one and I was with my wife and I was actually just at one, not doing one. And everybody's walking in and the whole time I'm giving a color commentary on my critique of this wedding. Right? Because I, look, when we pray to be, you know, contributors and not critical at the beginning, I think you guys think that's for you. That's mostly for me. I'm pretty selfish, okay? And I'm giving this running commentary on how I'd make everything better and how they messed this up and how they messed this up and how the song choice was wrong and, oh, they're going to read 1 Corinthians 13 original. You know, I'm doing all of these things. And my wife looks at me and says, can you stop? Can you just stop and recognize that this is the happiest day of their life and be happy for them? And at that point, I said, <clears throat> okay, sure. I mean, I'll do it for you, right? It was a good moment. I couldn't see past the constructs and I couldn't see past the traditions that they were getting right or wrong or doing differently or not doing how I thought they should to actually celebrate the beauty of the moment I missed it. So Jesus is interacting with these Pharisees and he says, guys, you know what your tradition's doing? It's blinding you from celebrating my grace. That's what it can do. And then he keeps walking with his disciples, verse 14, our second story today. It says, John's disciples came to Jesus and asked, why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples don't fast? Different disciples follow different people. And in the New Testament, there's some people that follow John for a while because they're trying to figure out if Jesus is legitimate. And so they see Jesus and his disciples not acting the same way in the same kind of rhythms and routines that the Judaism of the day asked them to do, particularly fasting. And they have a problem with that. They have a problem with that. And so they go up to Jesus' disciples and Jesus and they say, we fast because we love God because we want God to be happy with us. Why don't you fast? A couple things to know. One, is that in the Old Testament, it actually only says that the Jews should fast on one day, the Day of Atonement. It doesn't command it any other day. But at this point, because this is what Judaism did, it said, well, if God's really happy with one day, what if I give him one day a week? 
What, what if I give them two days a week? At this point, they fasted two days a week every single week to show God how much they loved him, to earn more merit and favor with God. And Jesus is saying, you missed the point completely of what fasting was for. Fasting is about recognizing that you need something. Feasting is about recognizing that it's here and celebrating. So he says in three analogies right after that, he says, Jesus told them, the wedding guests cannot mourn while the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days are coming when the bridegroom will be taken from them and they will fast. At a Jewish wedding, it makes our weddings look like funerals. <laughs> Jewish weddings lasted seven days oftentimes. It was days and days long, and you would invite not just your friends and family, you would invite the village and the town. So oftentimes, people of a lower class that couldn't afford nicer things would be invited to these weddings, and they would feast. Because when you get married, it's the coming together of two people to form the family that ultimately passes on the legacy of the goodness of God. That's how God designed it. Read the beginning of the Bible. And so when you come together like this, you feasted for days and days and days. And Jesus looks at these Jews that are fasting, saying, we need more, we need more, we need more. And he says, you don't understand, I'm sitting right here. You don't fast in the middle of a feast. He's saying, I'm sitting here in front of you. You've missed the purpose of fasting in the first place because you can't see that I came to fulfill the tradition that blinds you, the tradition that ensnares you, the tradition that causes you to miss the point. And I'm sitting here. And then he says, I'm not going to be here at some point, so fasting is a good idea when I'm gone again, but right here, right now, let's focus on the fact that I'm, I'm with you. They get it, you don't. It's the whole, you remember the, the Mary Martha story? When you have two women who love Jesus, who listen to Jesus, and they come over for a house party, and one of them wants to make everything just right for Jesus, and so she's doing some dishes in the other room, and one's sitting, listening, and there's some bitterness because one's doing the dishes and the other is being lazy in her mind. I'm that person doing the dishes, often judging people. And Jesus says, hey, there'll be time for that a long time after this, but right here, right now, she's doing the better thing because I'm here. Soak it in. So Jesus says, you've missed the point in the first place of your tradition and my fulfillment of your tradition. But then he goes on with two more examples. He says in verse 16, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment because the patch will pull away from the garment and the tear will be worse. So when it says no one sews a patch there, in the original language, it's a phrase that basically means not just, hey, you wouldn't do this, but, but literally no idiot would ever do this. It wasn't like this is a bad idea. It was more, this is an unthinkable idea. It's kind of like there's a show on Netflix that I like called Chef's Table. And they did a four-episode arc on barbecue this year. If you haven't watched it, it is amazing. The first one they do is on Texas barbecue, which begs the question, why are there three more episodes? You know? Really. I mean, we, we all get it. If you've had Texas barbecue, explaining Kansas barbecue, North Carolina barbecue, and South Carolina barbecue seems like a waste of time. I'm going to look at you and say, no one cares about inferior barbecue. Come to Texas. Let me give you a beef rib the size of your body, right? This is the goodness. You wouldn't even, as Texans, you wouldn't even dream of that. That's what he's saying. No one sews a new patch on an old sweater. Do you know why? Because a new patch oftentimes is stronger. And so as wear and tear happens, which of the two fabrics is going to give? The old one that's weak, not the new one. And if it ever gets wet, the new one's going to shrink. And when it shrinks, it 
pulls the old fabric apart even more. It makes matters worse, not better. So Jesus is saying to these people that say, why aren't you living into the religious system like we're supposed to? Why aren't you fasting? He's saying, I'm not, I am not here. I'm not here trying to fix your system. I'm saying your system is broken in the first place and I'm trying to do something new. I'm not trying to fix Judaism. It doesn't work. And then he has one last one. He says, no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. Instead, they put new wine into new wineskins. So it's kind of the same analogy. He's referencing kind of old and new. He's referencing what he came to do. He moves from tragedy, I lose a sweater, to travesty, if you believe Ben Franklin, when he said, you know, alcohol is a gift and a grace of God. Now we're we're ruining the wine, especially in a wedding feast. That would have been a really big deal. We move from tragedy to travesty because you really don't get it. It deepens the analogy. They would put wine into wineskins. And as the wine fermented into new wineskins, it would expand. And so the skin would expand. But if you put new wine into old wineskin, it would still need to ferment and expand, but the skin would have nowhere to go. It was stretched out all it could be. So it would just snap and break, and you'd lose everything. And so he's saying you don't do this because it's essentially going to break again even farther. You don't understand that I came to do something completely new. In verse 17, he uses the word new twice, and there's two different words there in the Greek that he uses for new. One means new in kind, and the other means new in time. So he's saying, I came to do something different than what you're used to, and I'm coming to do it right now that wasn't there before. We're talking about Jesus bringing a kingdom that delivers. He walks down the mountain after the Beatitudes, and he starts living out the rhythms of his kingdom. He starts bringing healing where there was disease. He starts bringing life where there was death. He starts bringing love where there was hate. He starts bringing these things that he lived out, proving to people around him that what he said was an actual reality, not just an empty promise. And he comes to these people and he says, your systems and ways of doing things are no longer breathing life into who you're becoming, but they're ensnaring you into who you are and not who I want you to be. It's when tradition moves to traditionalism. Because here's the deal. The laws in the Old Testament never really did serve the purpose of transforming the Israelites. As much as they tried and as hard as they tried, their their rituals and rules became a straitjacket instead of something that would actually change their hearts and minds. So Jesus comes. He says, I came to do what the law couldn't do. I came to bring transformation in the first place. So we begin to see what Jesus is doing right then and right there. So traditionalism in this sense that ensnares us and is a rut, not a rhythm of life, it, it, it blinds us from celebrating the depth of the grace of God, but it also binds us to a broken system that ultimately can't transform, that won't make you more like Jesus. What I love about this text is essentially what it calls in the question is, is how you see God how we all see God. Because you had two competing systems. You had this one system that had been built for years on what the Jews could do, on how good their sacrifice was, or how many days a week they fasted, or what they stopped doing on the Sabbath, 
how often they prayed, how loud they prayed, how much they gave. You had this system around the merits of men. But Jesus comes and says, it's not about that. And so there's two ways to see God. There's two ways. And both result in celebration. One is you celebrate pretty much based on how high you can reach to God. How much you do, how high your hands go in the air, how many Sundays out of the year you show up to church or two, is you celebrate how low God reaches for you. Matthew is celebrating, Jesus is celebrating. The disciples are not celebrating the merits of men, they're celebrating the motivation of God to save. It's the Jesus we follow. So in this text, what he's doing, he's calling out traditionalism because he's, he's simply saying that tradition is all about you, but transformation is about God, that traditionalism oftentimes is the work of men, but transformation, transformation, that's the work of God. And he's saying, where is your traditionalism not allowing you to see and celebrate the transformation that comes only, only, only through interacting with Jesus? So he's calling out their value system because in the end that's what tradition does it shows us what we value it helps us celebrate what we value together the question that we have to ask as we continue to live out healthy rhythms that 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 call us to celebrate our shared values is simply what are we celebrating is it what the tradition pointed towards or has it morphed into the tradition itself that's why Jesus ends by saying, instead, they put the wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. He's saying there's a new and better way. That quote by Pelican at the beginning stuck with me. It's, tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. He ends it by saying, and I suppose I should add that it's traditionalism that gives tradition such a bad name. The Bible isn't saying traditions are bad. Jesus isn't saying traditions are bad. What Jesus is saying is where do your traditions not breathe life into you anymore? Where are they ruts that hold you into who you are now? Because the Bible is full of, of traditions that Jesus started, or God started in the Old Testament to point to the future. <laughs> That's why in Colossians 2, it says that all of these traditions that you had around eating and drinking and Sabbath, they are shadows of things to come. They point to the ultimate goodness of God. They're shadows of what should be. Celebrate the value behind it, not the thing itself, because we are people that like to make idols. <laughs> and so often, good things become not good things when we worship them, because we can't hold up under the weight of it. And in this moment with these people Jesus is saying, don't miss the fact that you can worship your traditions and miss the transformation that's happening right here and right now. When we hold on to those traditions, those those cultural expressions of the shared values of the past, more than the people God has sent us into the present, that's a problem. These men couldn't see the disciples being changed. These men couldn't see the value of Jesus in the present. These men couldn't see the gravity and the bigness of the grace of God to call even people like Matthew. They completely missed it. So here's my question. How do we overcome the trap of traditionalism? How? I think from this text, it's pretty clear. As, As followers of Jesus, We overcome the trap of traditionalism by simply focusing on transformation over tradition. By focusing on the right things. By saying, where is God changing hearts, minds, and souls? Where is that at? I recently read a book uh, 
called Finding God's Will Together by Ruth Haley Barton. And in that book, she says, one thing we need to do as a church, and we read as an elder board and as a people of God, is ask the question, where is God moving? How can I move towards that? How can we celebrate the transformation that God is doing in our midst? One author said it this way, don't fall in love with anything but Jesus, the Bible, and people, because everything else is up for grabs. I think it's a healthy way, it's a healthy perspective to have over all the traditions that we have in the church, in in our families. So it begs the question, what does it mean for us here and now? I think we ask the question, what do we celebrate? When we come to church on Sunday mornings, what do we celebrate? We're Crossroads Bible Church, right? So we're going to read the scriptures every single week. And it's funny to me how over time in church history, you've seen us celebrate the Bible, but make the Bible a thing we celebrate, not the transformation that it brings with it, because God, the Holy Spirit, works in and through it. I think about just the battle over the King James Version, you know? It's published around 1611, and it did a lot of good. It got out to most of the world. The printing press was pretty new, but over time, we have new versions, and there are people today that still won't go to churches where the King James is not read. They are valuing traditionalism over the transformation that comes from the scriptures. Because there's a lot of good translations out there. There's some bad ones too. Do your work, right? But, but the point is that we see the transformation that comes and we value that. I've known pastors that literally have gotten in trouble in their churches because they didn't hold the Bible the right way. I've known pastors that literally got in trouble with churches because they taught from an outline and didn't hold a Bible when they taught. It's these things. And you might look at that and say, we would never do that. That's crazy. But we all have a proclivity to turn traditions into traditionalism and to stop seeing the transformation that God's doing right here, right now. I think Easter this year is a good example. We had a staff meeting on Tuesday. And I was talking with the team about Easter and what that looks like. And and just to be honest with you guys, we don't know yet. We're trying to figure it out. We're trying to make decisions based on what it's going to be like a month from now. And we know from the last year, that's a very bad idea. But here's what we know. Easter's happening and we're going to do some things at CBC. All right. So that's a good thing. We were talking about whether we do two inside services or an inside service and an outside service or just rent the tent from the Great British Bake Off and do everything right outside, you know, for one service, depending upon people's comfortability. Because we believe what we've said for the last year, that grace in this space looks like us meeting you where you are. And so sometimes that means outdoor services. And I was talking with the team and I was fighting for indoor services. Fighting is the wrong word. I was passionately making a case with Andy Zapata for indoor services. And and he was saying, let's just do one big outdoor service. And I said, man, but there's something about Easter that needs, you know, that that we value about being inside together and kicking it back and forth. And he said, yeah, that's not what we value. He said, I've been to Easter services inside and outside. I've known churches that have moved to racetracks and moved to theaters and moved to coliseums and moved to stadiums. He said, it's not about where we gather. It's about what we celebrate together. And much like when my wife chastised me over the weddings, I said, okay, all right, I see that point. (laughs) And I canceled the meeting and said, go home, right? (laughs) It got me thinking, though, that's exactly right. So whatever we decide to do on Easter, whether it's indoors or outdoors or both, or, you know, we drop eggs from a helicopter, we're never going to do that. But people do, (laughs) whatever we do, it's simply not about what we do, it's about who we're doing it for and what we're celebrating. The day when we realized that new life was available because Jesus beat death. We celebrate the tradition that celebrates the value, not the form of the tradition that oftentimes can be a rut, not a rhythm of life. I think about 
in the first century world, this is exactly what happens in the book of Romans, you know? Jews were kicked out of Rome and then they came back and they found their church that was not just dead but thriving and they had a hard time reconciling their old systems and ways of worshiping God and how the Romans did it. The whole book is about that reconciliation. Saying, hey, it's not about the specific ways in which you used to worship. Look at what God is doing right here, right now. This last week at CBC, the Anglicans moved in. I don't know if you guys know that. It's a church of the resurrection in Flower Mound and they're in a building campaign and sold their building to raise capital and we know them and we love them and they're meeting at the YMCA but their church office homeless for a little while. And so they said, hey, do you have a couple extra offices? We said, of course we do, come on, you know? We have some different traditions for sure than an Anglican church. But we're all after the same thing, the transformation that only comes in and through Jesus. So I'd ask you the same question that we've been asking this morning what are you celebrating and where is God transforming things? Where can we celebrate the transformation that comes through knowing who Jesus is and what he's doing? Because really, those are the stories we want to tell as a church. Those are the stories that show the magnitude of the grace of God, that, that show what God came to do and what he can do. Those are the stories that I gravitate towards when I read the scriptures. One of the most popular stories ever in the New Testament is the prodigal son. A story of a kid who ran away and broke a bunch of customs and rules, but ultimately came back. And you know what we celebrate there? We don't celebrate the fact that he broke all the traditions and the rules. We don't celebrate that even when he came back, the father broke traditions and rules by taking him back. And one of my favorite notes on that story is that the father saw him coming and this old rich dude started running towards his son. You know what old rich dudes didn't do in the first century? Run. They paid people to do that, you know? But he ran towards his son because he was not just looking at the tradition of his family. He was celebrating the transformation. The older brother was too caught up in tradition to see the value, the good, the magnitude, the transformation of God. What if we as a church started celebrating the transformation that's happening through the work of Jesus in our churches, in our cultures, in our communities, instead of being critical of how it's done? And that doesn't mean that we don't weigh things out and test things out. That doesn't mean there's not right and wrong. It simply, simply means that Jesus was more about transformation than tradition. What if we were a church that did that too? <laughs> I think we have a lot more to celebrate. And I think people need to celebrate and see that God is bigger. God is bigger than anything that we come up against everyday traditions or otherwise because he's in the business of changing lives. That's why we're here today. Let me pray for us.